This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I believe we are joined by Stephen Simon. Mr. Simon, are you with us? I am. Great. We are so pleased. For our listeners, we'll let you know that we have a fish wrap for you coming up after this segment. But we are so pleased to be able to begin this segment with Stephen Simon, who served as a National Security uh, Council staffer from 1994 to 1999, served on the National Security Staff as Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 through 2012, is currently at MIT as a fellow in international studies, the co-author of many books, including most recently just published Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. Stephen Simon, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for this book. I know it's not a big part of the book at all, but since it's so much in the news today, I wonder if we could take a one-minute detour and ask you for your view of what is happening in Sudan today, how dangerous is it, how many, how many, how much destruction will there be, what kind of deaths will there be, and is this important to the United States? Could you spend I'll a minute with us on that? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll take your last question first. I think it's of moderate importance to the United States. I don't think it really relates to uh, American core interests. Uh, the reason that the United States has expressed concern, apart from the humanitarian impact of the battle that's going on, is that uh, the Russians are involved. Uh, in Sudan. Uh, and anywhere the Russians are involved at this point is going to be a source of concern, uh, you know, for the United States because of the larger picture, you know, this sort of um, uh, very confrontational situation now between the U.S. and, and, and Russia. So that's, that's why Sudan has, uh, you know, a bit of significance as far as the, the, the violence and so forth. Well, the, neither side uh, that is, the government side or the challenger, uh, are, are interested in compromising at this point. They're going at it um, uh, full bore uh, and, and, and each looking to annihilate the other at this point. So um, the violence is going to continue to, uh, to escalate, and the humanitarian cost will be really horrific, in part because the battle is going on in an urban area. It's going, it's going on in the capital. Um, so it's very densely populated, and, and the fighting is going to, uh, you know, entail many civilian casualties and a lot of infrastructural damage, you know, things that will simply have to be rebuilt and rebuilt by a country that doesn't have, you know, a lot of resources. So it's a very tragic situation. And it's not ideological, as I understand it. We just have two people who want to be the ruler. Is that essentially right? You are right. You're absolutely right. No, there's no big ideological difference. These guys were fighting on the same time, on the same side for a long time, and they'd been in the government together, uh, you know, for a long time. Uh, they were both involved in the overthrow of the previous government uh, of, of, of Bashir. So, um, uh, you know, no, this is this is just lust for for power. Stephen Simon, I, I want to go to the end of your book, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East for one minute, because Sudan brings me to the question, what happened to the Arab Spring? What happened to this promise of democracy in northern Africa? Where did that go? Why did it disappear? Uh, I, I think it disappeared 
you know, for a couple of reasons. One is that um, states are very strong uh, and they're capable of pushing back, you know, the kind of uprisings that we saw. Sometimes it takes uh, a huge amount of, of violence to push it back, as, as happened in Syria. Uh, and sometimes it takes very little, uh, as happened in Egypt and, and Tunisia. <clears throat> so uh, I think one, one answer to the question is, well, is the democratic forces are essentially weak. Uh, they don't have the guns and they don't have uh, the organization uh, to, uh, to push their agenda. That's number one. Number two is that, you know, when you get a new government, a revolutionary government that, that wants democracy and so forth, the, the population looks to them to deliver and to deliver practical things, um, uh, uh, income, uh, uh, building housing, uh, uh, food supplies, uh, clean water, um, uh, and, and a whole host of things that people just need. And when they see these new democracies unable to provide these things, then they ask themselves, well, you know, what, where, where's the beef? What, what's the point here? And, they, and their support for these revolutionary uh, governments or these democracies uh, tends to diminish. And, you know, there uh, you know, is an insurmountable problem, really, because, you know, they, some of these new governments, for example, in Tunisia and Egypt, look to the United States to support them uh, economically while they got on their feet and, and, and organized themselves to deliver these, these goods to the population. But the United States had no resources at the time. Uh, the, uh, the Obama administration, which was uh, in the White House uh, at that moment, uh, sought funding from Congress uh, to be able to support these new governments. But Congress uh, was, uh, wasn't interested in, in spending taxpayer dollars on the support of those revolutions. So the United States basically had empty pockets. There was just nothing much it could do with one big exception. Uh, and that was uh, an arm and train program for Syrian rebels uh, that lasted for a number of years. It was only curtailed by the uh, Trump administration, I think, in, in uh, 2017. Um, and, and that cost billions. Um, you know, if that money had been spent on supporting successful revolutions, you know, elsewhere, uh, it might have it might have had an effect. But anyway, uh, it didn't work out uh, in Syria. But it was a massive, uh, if largely concealed, uh, intervention that 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 cost a lot of money. But uh, but otherwise, money was not available, you know, to support these these governments. We're speaking with Stephen Simon, who is the former senior director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs for the National Security Council. His new book is Grand Delusion, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. I love the way the book is structured. Uh, it is by President Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, William J. Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack H. Obama, Donald J. Trump, and Joseph Biden. Those are the chapter headings with subheadings. I turned immediately to the chapter on George W. Bush, subtitled, Wrong Man, Wrong Time. You, your reporting is, condemns 
I think it's fair to say, the Bush administration and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and the whole bunch of them, including Condoleezza Rice, who you say came to the Bush administration and the whole administration saying they had a plan before they ever took power in Washington to invade Iraq. How could we not know that at the time? How could we be brought into this war that they had planned and then used Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction as an excuse? How did that happen? Well, I think until 9-11, it was just talk. So no one paid much attention. Uh, the United States at that point, the Bush administration at that point, was locked in a, in a very dangerous situation with China. Uh, during the summer of 2001, the Chinese had, um, uh, had brought down a U.S. spy plane, taken the crew prisoner, and, you know, dismantled the airplane and, and, and uh, unearthed its secrets. So uh, the, the Bush administration was very preoccupied uh, with that, with getting a grip on, on U.S.-China relations. So all the talk about uh, Iraq and so forth, uh, seem to have, um, you know, little prospect of, of being acted on. 9-11 changed that. When that attack took place, the immediate response, literally within a day of, of the 9-11 attacks, um, the administration had resolved uh, to um, uh, take on Iraq as part of the U.S. response to the 9-11 attacks. And... Uh, you know, I had a I had a strange experience. Uh, you know, around that time, I was in a uh, a, a conference, and one of the other uh, participants was a former Secretary of State, uh, George Shultz, uh, from the Reagan administration, and 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 we were asked, well, should the United States invade Iraq? And 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 I said, well, no, I didn't think that was a very good idea. And and Secretary Shultz got um, got very upset by this. And he said, well, then who should we invade? <laughs> now, yeah, I know. But, <laughs> but, but his point was that, you know, the United States, for, uh, for credibility and, and as a show of resolve, needed to respond to the 9-11 attacks by a really dramatic military gesture. And since the attack had been carried out by people from the United Arab Emirates uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, well, we couldn't very well, you know, attack those countries. And the plot was actually um, put together in Hamburg, Germany. We weren't going to bomb the Germans. So, well, well there, then you get to Secretary Schultz's question. Well, who should we invade to show that we mean business? And Iraq was in the gun sites. And Iraq was in the gun sites because George H.W. Bush had invaded Iraq and entangled us with that country um, 10 years before. Oh, dear. Oh, no. It, Did we lose Had invaded that country 10 years before. Well, well, could I ask a question about this? He said that, you know, who should we invade, George Schultz? But we already had invaded Afghanistan because that's where Al-Qaeda and the bases were. So the fact is we had to invade somebody else. It's a little confusing to me, but I don't know if we have. Well, we seem to have lost Stephen Simon for a moment. Let me... No, I'm here. Oh, you no, are okay. here. Oh, good. Oh, great. We, okay. we lost you. So uh, 
the decision was based on the fact we had to do something dramatic and invading a country was, well, that was the solution to we have to do something dramatic to show our resolve as a country to fight back against, well, against against whom was the question because al-Qaeda was not the, was not the target, right? Well, uh, al-Qaeda was the, the target in Afghanistan, but Afghanistan was a sort of a, a small country. There, there weren't enough targets to attack in Afghanistan to make it a dramatic response of the kind that the administration felt was warranted under the circumstances. And al-Qaeda itself was a small, shadowy group um, people, you know, knew about it, and they and they knew that Al Qaeda was was planning something. But uh, during the summer of, of of 2001, the head of CIA described himself as 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 his hair being on fire. They they knew that an attack was in the offing, but they couldn't get the White House attention um, uh, to begin planning for it or to interrupt it. So because in the administration's view, al-Qaeda, ah, you know, they're not important. You know, the only, the only countries that are important are the large powers. And al-Qaeda, not only was it not a large power, it wasn't even a country. It was just this small group and, and therefore nothing, uh, not important enough to focus on. So when, when 9-11 happened, uh, the, there, there were no obvious targets uh, for a U.S. response except for Iraq. Um, the United States went into Afghanistan very quickly, of course, by, by October, November of 2001. There were U.S. special forces operating in Afghanistan. And ultimately, uh, we put in uh, you know, regular forces, and they, they chased al-Qaeda around the country, but ineffectively. Uh, Al-Qaeda folks got out of Afghanistan ahead of U.S. forces. There was supposed to be a, you know, a hammer and anvil military operation that was going to crush Al-Qaeda, um, uh, uh, you know, between the hammer and the anvil, but it didn't work out because that's, that's the way things go with military operations. So Iraq was there, you know, to be invaded, and, 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 and Iraq had a very bad reputation because the United States had already fought one war against it and had imposed sanctions for a long time. So there you have it. Stephen Simon, I know you're on a satellite radio tour today. I, I, can you stay with us a few more minutes, or do you have a heart out and you have to run? Um, let's see. No, I've got a few minutes. Oh, good, good. Well, here's, here's the question that your book leaves me with. Um, and I want to know. I want you to know how much I appreciate the in-depth reporting and your your perspective as a national security expert. I want to know about the title and its implications. Grand delusion: the rise and fall of American ambition in the Middle East. Which you take us through, and you take us through the various presidents and their ambitions. It's really fascinating. It brings back some history that I knew and a lot that I didn't. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that America has lost its ambition, according to you, in the Middle East? Should we get out as much as possible? And I guess the sub-question is, and isn't our perhaps uh, weaning away from dependence on Saudi oil, isn't that a good thing? 
yeah, on the whole, I think I think these are all good things. Look at it this way. Uh, the United States long had two main objectives in the Middle East. The one was the survival and then the security of Israel. And the other was access to Saudi oil, guaranteed access to Saudi oil, which meant protecting the security of, of the um, local regimes who sat on the oil. Um, and and, and the, the oil deal, let me interrupt, that goes back to Franklin Roosevelt. That goes back to Franklin Roosevelt, absolutely, in 1945. Uh, he met the then king of, of Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and they agreed uh, to have uh, this close relationship where the United States would foster the security of, of Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia would ensure that plenty of oil uh, came America's way and that Americans would be given uh, 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 first first rights to drilling for oil in, in Saudi Arabia, which was a huge thing for the American oil industry. So yes, that goes back a long way. Well, by the end of the Cold War, both of, both of America's core objectives had been met. Israel was in great shape. It had nuclear weapons, it had a large army, it had a big defense industrial base, it had uh, you know, a very respectable uh, gross national product. Um, you know, their economy was, was okay. People were earning. So um, the, the United States had succeeded already at that point with Israel and likewise with Saudi Arabia. Uh, at that point, the Saudis had no natural predators. Um, the uh, the uh, Saudi regime, the Saudi royal house was well-established. Um, and, and, and they were in good shape, and there was no challenge uh, to uh, uh, a steady supply of oil to the United States, really, or uh, to uh, Europe or other important areas. The only challenge to U.S. access to Saudi oil uh, during this uh, earlier period was posed by the Saudis themselves, who put an embargo on uh, oil to the United States, in 1973 and 1974 to protest U.S. support for Israel in its war with Egypt and Syria in 1973. So, ironically, the only threat to oil came from Saudi Arabia, not from outside Saudi Arabia against, um, uh, against the Saudi royal family. So, anyway, uh, the point here is that we were in good shape vis-a-vis -vis our core objectives by the end of um, by the end of the Cold War, but we couldn't get out, and we couldn't get out because at that very moment, the George H. W. Bush administration had entangled us with Iraq. We have been and speaking with Stephen Simon. His new book is Grand Delusion: The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. I want to note before we run that among other subtitles in a chapter about George W. Bush is this subtitle, Israel and the United States accidentally place Hamas in charge of Gaza. The book is fascinating. It is full of details that you want to know. It is available at your local independent bookstore. Stephen Simon, thank you so much for your time today, and thank you so much for this book. Thank you, sir.
listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. There are moments when the beauty in nature arrests us, and we must look or listen very closely. These moments are so fleeting. How do we keep these moments of wonder alive? That's a question the poems in Mary Pfister's new collection wrestle with, but don't fully answer, hence the title, Quick to Bolt. Mary Pfister reads from Quick to Bolt at Broadside Bookshop Wednesday, April 26th at 7 p.m. Quick to Bolt is a delight. Be there as Mary Pfister brings these poems to life, Wednesday, April 26th at the Broadside. College tuition, a long overdue remodel. Credit card consolidation. Good ideas come to you every day. But now, with a home equity loan from Franklin First Federal Credit Union, you take ideas and make them come alive. Get a fixed rate of 5.74% APR for 20 years and gain control of your world again. Start at franklinfirst.org. Rates subject to change, membership eligibility required. Franklin First Federal Credit Union is an equal housing lender and insured by NCUA. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started, and we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long, and you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. Have you ever gone swimming with a polar bear, scuba dived with crocodiles? Amos Nahum has, and his nature photography has made him the BBC's Wildlife Photographer of the Year twice. Now he's coming to Northampton's Academy of Music for an Earth Day show Saturday, April 22nd. He'll share his breathtaking images, the thrilling stories behind the photos, and his message of harmony with the natural world. Visit aomtheater.com to get your tickets today for Amos Nahum, funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism, and visit Hampshire County You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Two stories in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette we want to bring to your attention. The first is a front page story with two beautiful photographs. Workhorse remembered, enormous contributions, staffers, family, friends celebrate the life of former Congressman John Olver, who served the region for four decades. I was at the event at UMass at the John Oliver Design Building on Sunday. It was a very moving experience and very funny. A lot of humor, a lot of warmth, a lot of love. Uh, everyone who spoke had a comment or two, directly or indirectly, about how John would go on at some length, Bill, <laughs> about various matters but also about his incredible intelligence, extraordinary dedication, his policy knowledge and acumen, his ability to drill down and really understand issues, his, uh, despite all what seems sort of the anti-politician political way that he had of being in a political world, he was enormously effective. And you look at all of the ways in which this region will be and has been served by his dedication and his competence, it will go on for decades and decades. The transportation infrastructure, the buildings, the, the uh, uh, bike trails. I mean, there was a very moving uh, contribution from Senator Markey that had a list of everything that John accomplished and after, he, not everything, but many of the things that John accomplished. And after those two minutes went by, he went, wow, 
what a congressional representative. The guy was amazing, and he was. And he was very funny in his droll way, uh, and he was a person who was greatly admired and is missed. Uh, and I thought that uh, con a congressman uh, who succeeded him, who, of course, is well-loved himself in our district, uh, uh, is and his dedication was, I just thought, was, was beautiful as well. Uh, Stan Rosenberg did a fabulous job and got the warm and I think warmly deserved uh, expression of support and love and thanks himself. I was so pleased and so par so pleased to be able to be a part of that. Uh, John Oliver was a, an extraordinary individual, and he will be missed. He passed uh, last year, of course. Yeah, I'm so glad that you are referencing that and that you were present for that. I wish I was, but um, I was so moved, Bill. You invited a number of colleagues um, uh, of John Oliver's on in the wake of his death who all said exactly uh, the kind of messages that you are repeating from this weekend's event, that uh, he was just not just loved. He was widely respected. He was a really special person, and... Um, we're lucky to have had him represent us. He was, and I love the remarks that uh, Representative Jim McGovern made during this during this celebration of John Oliver's life as well. And, and again, it's kind of a funny, funny ending, to, funny intentionally ending to the story written by our friend Bob Flaherty. Uh, Bob, of course, was there. I saw him on Sunday as well. He wrote a really moving piece for the Gazette and ended it with a quip. From, from the congressman uh, who, who re, I'd say replaced, but who took the seat after uh, John Over resigned, uh, Jim McGovern, and Jim McGovern did a fabulous job as well. This is well worth reading, and the photographs are just spectacular. Uh, I really, really, really suggest you take a look at today's Gazette. It is a tribute to local n newspaper reporting. One other story, also a tribute to local newspaper reporting. I have a question about this. Again, another article by Emily Thurlow, staff writer for the Gazette. About Who, the, by the way, has been doing an incredible job covering this school committee. Bruja. Uh, uh, Controversy. I was going to say turbulence. But turbulence, yeah, is, that's is a good, good. word. Um, uh, Dunham, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name, uh, Shannon uh, Dunham's name correctly, resigns from school committee Scheduled surgery expected to sideline three-term member for 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, uh, the story says that she announced, uh, Dunham announced her decision with a photo of her official resignation via post on the school committee's Facebook page Saturday night. Quote, I officially resigned from the East Hampton School Committee. Not attributed to the recent turbulence controversy brouhaha fight about the superintendent, but couldn't have helped her health very much. Well, she, yeah. Well, she says this is a 25-year-old injury. It is finally going to be surgically repaired. And she writes a very nice note um, explaining that it was with great sadness that she writes this letter and she has to prioritize her health and well-being at this time. And I don't mean to minimize. Uh, I wish her well. We all wish her well and hope that she has a very successful recovery. But the irony in the way she began her letter of resignation is, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Really? 
honest. Those are the first words in her letter of resignation. And I'm not laughing because she is resigning or because she has this health problem. Obviously, it's just, it's hard to escape that irony. Yeah, well, let's add to the irony a bit. Uh, later in the article by uh, Emily, who I agree with you, but has done a great job on this. Um, more recently, I'm quoting a sentence or two, more recently, uh, Dunham voted to hire Vito Perone in the committee's controversial search for a new superintendent this spring. The committee later rescinded the offer to Perone over his use of the word, quote, ladies, in an email to the chairperson, Cynthia Kwasinski, and Suzanne Colby, executive assistant to the committee. So <laughs> I don't know where ladies and gentlemen uh, came from. I thought that was interesting. And I, since uh, Emily Thoreau has reported in detail how that wasn't the whole reason at all, I thought her summary, and I understand she's uh, squeezed on space. It has to fit within the space allocated. But still summarizing it that way, I thought was a bit ironic itself. <laughs> we were talking right. just for a moment before we came back on the air. And Buzz, you were saying... You were asking, posing the question, will there be a special election? How will the seat be filled? Does the uh, mayor or the school committee have the right to uh, appoint an interim? How is all that going to work in East Hampton? Well, promise we'll find out. And probably Emily Thurlow will be writing about it because she has covered this story magnificently. Yes. In terms of things that covering, I want to make one note about yesterday where the question came up whether Chase Bank in Northampton was open. After the show, I called Chase Bank and asked, is Northampton open? Called the Springfield branch, and they said, nope. We expect it will open sometime in the summer. And then there was kind of some mumbling about, and maybe later. So Ooh. that's what I, that's all I know. Activists, protesters, people who want to protect the climate, pay attention, please. Yeah, they didn't mention any of that. But they uh, anyway, that's what I know. We'll be right back. seen you shine so bright You were amazing Never seen so many people want to be there by your side And when you turn to me and smile You took my breath away I have never had such a feeling Such a feeling of complete and utter love As I do tonight This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An AFAL man has been sentenced for his part in the January 6th attacks at the Capitol. Vincent Gillespie was found guilty of civil disorder, physical violence, assaulting or impeding officers, and other charges in the January 6th U.S. Capitol attacks. He was sentenced to five years in prison. Evidence presented at the trial show Gillespie, a previous resident of Greenfield, among rioters violently engaging with police defending the Lower West Terrace of the Capitol. Gillespie was arrested in February of last year. One person is under arrest after an alleged stabbing Saturday around 1 p.m. in Montague. Police received reports of an assault and battery with a deadly weapon and found an 80-year-old victim with wounds to the abdomen and hand. They were transported to Bay State Medical Center in Springfield. The reported attacker turned herself into the Montague Police Department and was arrested and held on $25,000 bail. She is expected to appear in Greenfield District Court today for an arraignment. 
Mass Housing is looking for the public's help by submitting comments about the planned construction of affordable homes on Ball Lane and Amherst. The nonprofit organization Valley Community Development Corporation in Northampton has applied to Mass Housing for funding assistance. The proposal is to develop 30 affordable home ownership units on 20 to 40 Ball Lane, approximately eight acres located at the corner of Pulpit Hill Road and Montague Road. Forms are available for public comment on the town's website. Mostly cloudy today, chance for a scattered shower, especially early afternoon, a high of 56 to 60. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, overnight low of 32 to 38. Sun cloud mix and breezy tomorrow, a high of 54 to 58, back up near 70 and brighter on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, se comprometió el lunes a aprobar una legislación para aumentar el techo de la deuda de la nación, pero solo con la condición de limitar los futuros aumentos del gasto federal al 1%, mientras criticaba al presidente Joe Biden por negarse a participar en negociaciones de recorte presupuestario para evitar una crisis de deuda. En un discurso de alto perfil en la Bolsa de Valores de Nueva York, McCarthy, el líder republicano que cumplía 100 días como vocero de la Cámara, dijo que la carga de la deuda de la nación es una bomba de relojería y que Biden está desaparecido mientras se acerca la fecha límite para elevar el límite de endeudamiento. Pero la propia capacidad de McCarthy para llevar a cabo su plan como se prometió es muy incierta. La aprobación de la Cámara podría servir como una tarjeta de presentación para presionar a Biden a negociar. Dado que el presidente sigue ocultándose, los republicanos de la Cámara tomarán medidas, prometió McCarthy. En otras informaciones, y sin citar una razón, el juez de Delaware que supervisa la demanda por difamación de 1.6 mil millones de dólares de una compañía de máquinas de votación contra Fox News anunció el domingo por la noche que retrasaría el inicio del juicio hasta el martes. El juicio que ha atraído el interés internacional estaba programado para comenzar el lunes por la mañana con la selección del jurado y declaraciones de apertura. El caso se centra en si Fox difamó a Dominion Voting Systems al difundir afirmaciones falsas de que la compañía manipuló las elecciones presidenciales de 2020 para evitar la reelección del expresidente Donald Trump. Los registros producidos como parte de la demanda muestran que muchos de los anfitriones y ejecutivos de Fox no creyeron las acusaciones, pero las ventilaron de todos modos. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Welcome to our monthly comedy quiz. Let me turn the microphone over to Maddie Benjamin. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, and good morning. I am Maddie Benjamin, program manager and facilitator of fun at Happier Valley Comedy Theater and monthly nerd in residence. And this is the Happier Valley Comedy Comedy Quiz Show. And I am here to ask a handful of very funny people to answer questions on a subject they know nothing about. This week, our panelists are Kate Jobson, Julie Wagner, and Scott Braidman. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. So excited to be here. Ditto. Well, uh, I have a, a fun little quiz prepared for us this month. Uh, we are going to briefly take a break from the stressful world of humans and answer questions about some very smart animals in a quiz that I have titled Animal Intelligence, The Cuter AI. Aww. Aww. <laughs> 
Exactly. Okay, everyone has a point. Good response. Well done. We practiced harmonizing in the lobby while we were waiting. How, how are we feeling? Are we ready to jump right into it? We are. They are. Excellent. All right. So these first couple of questions are going to be multiple choice. I will read the question and then the answer, the possible answers, and everyone will have a chance to uh, chime in. And if you are listening at home, feel free to play along. All right. Go. Question one. Uh, Nora, a rescue cat from Camden, New Jersey, went viral in 2007 for her, her ability to do what? Was it A, complete jigsaw puzzles, B, play the piano, C, knit, or D, paint with watercolors? Oh, I'm going to go with play the piano. This is Kate. I'm going to go with watercolors. I have seen a lot of cats on the piano, so I'm, I'm hoping Nora did something special. <laughs> <laughs> wow, judgy. Wow. There's a critical eye in the feline world. This is Julie, and I'm going to go with jigsaw puzzles because I like the idea of the little cat paws moving puzzle mm. pieces around. Yeah. Does anyone have any reasons for these guesses, or it just it sounds nice? Because I like the idea of little cat paws <laughs> moving the puzzle pieces around. Oh, got it. Okay, thank you. Yep. Yeah, and I answered playing the piano because I'm okay if Nora is just an average cat. It's fine. It's who she is, Kate. <laughs> now... It might not be remarkable by Kate's standards, but Nora the Piano Cat watched her piano teacher mother give lessons and learned to play the piano. And she now not only has her own YouTube channel, but you can also find her music on Spotify, everybody. Look up Nora the Piano Cat. So the correct answer was B. A point for Scott. <laughs> Meow, that's what I call music. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> look at that cat on the piano. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, exactly. no, that was the cool cat joke. <laughs> that yeah, was a jazz guy. <laughs> All right. Uh, question number two. Uh, what animal has both a central brain, which acts as the center of its nervous system, as well as a, quote, mini brain at the end of each of its limbs? Is it A, an ant, B, an octopus, C, a gecko, or D, a sea anemone? Oh, this is key. I, I believe I know this one, and I think that it is octopus and uh, the octopi, and I don't, I don't remember why, but I wonder what happens. Nah, I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> this is Julie, and I'm going to go with C, anemone, just because it's so fun to say anemone. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, I'm going to go with uh, E, men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the mini brain. <laughs> the quote unquote mini brain. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bill, but can we take extra, points away? Extra, extra, extra <laughs> brains. <laughs> Men, Scott is the first person in the history of this segment to be in minus negative numbers yes. for his score. Yeah. Uh, well, somebody gets actual points for this, and it's Kate. The correct answer is an octopus. They have uh, eight mini brains at the end of their tentacles, which allow them to uh, sense their surroundings through their through their fingers. One of the most amazing films I've ever seen. My I Octopus te Teacher. I love that film. Yeah. If, it truly is. It is. If you haven't seen it, 
watch it. Not funny though, Bill. No, not funny. <laughs> not funny, but very moving. And just you'll never think you for one thing, you're never going to eat an octopus again if you ever have. And the second yeah. is the brilliance of these sea creatures is just extraordinary. It's it's very sad they have completely ruined my ability to eat octopus. Mm-hmm. Grilled octopus and I'm like so smart. Okay. okay. Well, you can still eat sea anemones. Yeah, you sure can. You can uh, say it and eat them. The ane- <laughs> anemones. You go to your local co-op and buy your... Can you, okay, never mind. Let's move well, along. Well, I'll ask some more questions about animals you probably don't want to eat. Uh, this next one, uh, which animal has the largest brain-to-body ratio among all animal species other than humans? Is it A, the bottlenose dolphin, B, the chimpanzee, C, the orca, or D, the gorilla? Hmm. I'm going to go with uh, chimpanzee because I know they're real smart and their bodies tend to be pretty lil. <laughs> <laughs> That's a scientific term, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with orca because I root for the bad guys. This is Kate. I'm going to go with Orca as well. I I just have a memory of it being a water animal, and I dolphins got those little tiny brains, I think. Little tiny brains. All right. Well, wow. Orcas have the second largest brain of any animal in the ocean. The highest brain-to-body ratio actually goes to the bottle-nosed dolphin. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, with a brilliant cartoon from years ago. Two dolphins are at SeaWorld back when they had SeaWorld, and the dolphins are talking to each other. There's a guy on the deck, and one dolphin turns to the other and says, I trained them so quickly to give me those fish. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So I think we have one more. Who got that one right? Who gets a point? Nobody got any points. Nobody gets any points. Everyone dissed the dolphins. But they're cute. They missed it on on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) And you thought you weren't clever. (laughs) My mini brain. (laughs) Buzz is now officially at minus two. (laughs) Along with Scott. We start taking away what a score! What a score! This is really messing up the scoreboard. Okay, (laughs) moving along. All right, the final multiple choice question: Uh, Which of the following behaviors has not been seen displayed by crows? Is it A, the ability to remember human faces? B, speaking with regional dialects. <laughs> C, the ability to recognize all 26 letters of the English alphabet. Or D, the use of tools. Mm, I'm going to go with... And, wait a second, the question is, the question is, which, which one... Which one is, has not been is, seen in crows? Has not been seen mm-hmm. in so crows. Th- crows have been seen doing three of these things. Yeah, I'm fairly confident it is recognizing all 26 letters of the English alphabet. And there's some reason why you're so confident? Yeah, I just love the idea of cats moving puzzle pieces <laughs> with their little paws. Okay, who's next on this one? Uh, this is Julie, and I'm going to also go with the, the letters of the English language because, uh, well, I know that birds do call in different dialects depending on where they are in the country. I don't know if they speak. Uh, they do, crows do use tools, and they do recognize people. Well, this is Kate, and that's wonderful. I'm also... (laughs) 
Who knew we had an expert ornithologist, really? I am also going to go with the letters one, especially because, what was B again? Uh, uh, The dialect. dialect. Yeah, I I have to live in a world where that's true. Julie has now told me it is true. So, yeah, I'm going to also go with the alphabet. (laughs) Ka-ka, y'all. Well, great job logicking that out for all of us, Julie. The correct answer is C, recognizing all 26 letters of the English alphabet. So did everyone get that right? Everybody got that one right. Okay. I think everyone might be above zero now. No, Scott's oh, yeah. just just got to zero. Great but job. congratulations. You're back to where you began. And it's right where I want to be. How okay. does a Canadian crow spell Canada? C-A-N-A-D-A. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back with more of the comedy, comedy, comedy quiz right after this. It's funny how the missus always looks a bleeding same. And meanwhile at the station there's a couple of likely lads who swear like as your father and they're very cool for cats, they're cool for cats. To change the mood a little, I've been posting down the pub. I'm seeing my reflection, I'm looking slightly rough. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The lights come up, the music plays, there you are. Center stage in a Broadway musical. You're at summer camp at the Bement School in Deerfield. There are theme weeks like Broadway, fairy houses, flag football, studio arts, STEM challenges, and science exploration. There's basketball week, wizarding week, dance camp, and digital storytelling. Bement Summer Camp, themed weeks all summer. Or good old-fashioned day camp weeks with no theme at all, just swimming, games, and arts and crafts. Plus, outdoor adventure camps with our partner Adventure East, in case you like paddling canoes or climbing rocks. Summer Camp at the Bement School in Deerfield. It's all on the Bement website. Bement is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. We learn from each other in the classroom, cheer for each other on the field, and celebrate each other on the stage. And we don't stop in the summer. Sign up for summer camp at bement.org. Remember the joy on the kids' faces when they rode the steamer train? The beautiful wedding in the sanctuary. Eating that rapidly melting ice cream cone by the water spray park on a hot day in July. For almost 100 years, Look Park in Florence has been the scene for weddings, cookouts, concerts, and lazy days in the sun. What do you remember about Look Park? The theme of Look Park this year is I Remember When, and Look Park wants to hear your stories. Share your favorite memories throughout the season in the park and online at lookpark.org. While you're there, get your 2023 season pass, only $70 for unlimited days in the park. Consider buying a second discounted pass to donate to a family in need through Look Park's partnership with the Northampton Survival Center, or donate directly to Look Park. 100% of Look Park's operating budget comes from entry fees, grants, and donations. Look Park in 2023, looking back on decades of memories and looking forward to creating decades of new ones. Share yours today. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our comedy quiz. Maddie Benjamin. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, Welcome back to the 
the HBC Comedy Quiz. We are joined this week by Scott Braidman, Kate Jobson, and Julie Wagner, uh, three very funny people and regular performers at Happier Valley Comedy, so come check them out in a show sometime. Uh, but before we get them back to performing, uh, we need to see who will be crowned the champion in today's Animal Intelligence Quiz. Uh, so we're going to jump right back in, and these next couple of questions are going to be open response questions. Um, so I will ask uh, the question, and then you'll be able to chime in with your answers. It will not provide multiple choices, so oh. the training wheels are off. <laughs> All right. Is everybody ready? Ready. Cool. All right. Our first open response question is about Magawa, who is a giant African rat who unfortunately passed away in January of 2022, but was hailed as a hero for its long career of doing what? Uh, (laughs) So Magawa, the giant African rat, had a long career in which he saved thousands of people by doing what? Uh, uh, Smelling his way to hidden explosive devices. Oh, wow. Um... That was heavy. Could we remind you this is a comedy quiz? Thank you, Scott. <laughs> I'm going to say that Magawa was um, a lifeguard, and he was on, I picture him on a beach, and there's like a little bell that he can ring if somebody is drowning, and that way, um, you know, somebody knows to come. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's good. Um, I, I was going to say what Kate said, so I'm going to say <laughs> what Kate said. <laughs> well... I don't like to think of it as a downer because of all of the hard work that he did in saving people. Um, but yet, Magawa was a landmine sniffing rat oh. in Cambodia who was responsible for saving thousands of people by sniffing out underground explosives. So Scott actually got a point there. Uh, I'll get the next one wrong so I can get back down to zero. <laughs> Good. That, that will make everyone feel better. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, great. So for the next question, um, the answer is going to be the name of an animal. So what animal is known to find and keep a favorite rock that it tucks into a pouch in its underarm? Oh, a pouch in its underarm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got distracted. I didn't know animals had pouches under their underarms. It's so. got a pocket for its favorite rock. <laughs> That's why they call it an armpit. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm gonna, this is Julie. I'm going to go with men. Minus three, Bill. (laughs) No, no. Julie has plus five for that. In the lead, clearly correct. It'd be nice if I could just like tuck a little odor eater into a pouch in my armpit and just like keep it there like a car freshener. Yes, it would be. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Buzz is sitting next to me. Uh, I'll go with um, a bat. That's what I'll say. Um, This is Kate. I don't really know many animals with pouches. I guess my brain-to-body ratio is not as big as other humans. Um, So I'm going to go with the only one I know of, which is kangaroo. Well, all great guesses, uh, but the answer is the sea otter. It finds a favorite rock that it uses to crack open shells, and it saves it for later in its armpit pocket. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Cute. (laughs) They were already cute. Why do they have to find more cute things? Always cuter. All right, we got time for one more, so jump right in uh, with your answers on this one. Uh, In 2018, Brazilian police seized a parrot who had been trained to do what? Best answers, go. 
cancel someone who said a racial slur. Oh my gosh. It had been trained to attack people with bad singing voices, so they would stop. Imitate the Brazilian president and issue orders on radio. Um, again, wonderful answers across the board. Uh, but this parrot was trained to say, Mom, the cops, whenever it saw police officers. So amazing responses all around. I, 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 I don't know. Do we give anybody points for that last one, Bill? It's really hard. This is the most confused scorecard, and I've been keeping score here for a long time. I've got minuses and pluses and arrows and all sorts of things. I'm just going to we'll give the game a cross-the-board award to all the contestants, Kate and Julie and Scott and Maddie, for wonderful questions. Really, you guys did great. Mini brain. Everybody's a winner on the comedy quiz show, and <laughs> Kate hates it. My mom will probably be calling in with the correct score. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us this month on the comedy quiz. If you need more laughter in your life, Happier Valley Comedy at One Mill Valley Road in Hadley has shows uh, every Saturday night. This Saturday night is the championship short form show. It's a ton of fun. You can buy tickets and find out more at Happier Valley. Thanks so much. What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. Have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock. Of a black teenager shot in the head and hand when he went to the wrong house to pick up his younger brothers is opening up about what happened. Ralph Yarrell is recovering at home after being shot twice. His mother, Cleo Nagby, spoke first with CBS Mornings. His spirits are in a good place. I borrow from his spirits. He is in very good hands. The 84-year-old white man who allegedly shot the black teen is facing several charges. Jim Crisula, CBS News. A homeowner in upstate New York has been charged with second-degree murder after police say he shot at a car full of young people who took a wrong turn onto his driveway. A 20-year-old passenger was killed. Washington County Sheriff Jeffrey Murphy. There was clearly no threat from anyone in the vehicles. There was no reason for Mr. Monahan to feel threatened, especially as it appears the vehicles were leaving. 
A judge in Russia has denied Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich's bid to get out of jail as he awaits trial on espionage charges. Correspondent Holly Williams is at the foreign desk. Even if the U.S. government can negotiate Evan Gershkovich's release, it may not be quick. Basketball star Brittany Griner was held by Russia for nearly 10 months before the Kremlin eventually agreed to swap her for a convicted Russian arms traitor. Gershkovich appeared at court in Moscow today in a glass cage. President Biden will focus on working parents later this afternoon. White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. In the Rose Garden, the president will tout an executive order directing federal agencies to expand child care subsidies for their own workers. The order will also have agencies determining whether they can require companies that win federal grants to also subsidize child care. In addition, Mr. Biden's measure would boost pay for Head Start staff and leverage Medicaid dollars to improve the quality of home care jobs. It's getting awfully smelly in Jackson, Mississippi. There's been no trash pickup for almost three weeks after the city's contract with a private company expired on the first of the month. Local Daryl Norwood says he wants to vote all of those city leaders out of office. Me being paralyzed is impacted pretty bad. Because I have no way of, of getting the garbage out of my, my yard. I have no way of doing it. The Jackson City Council meets later today to vote on a proposed contract with a new trash collector. Going up for auction in Zurich. A giant T-Rex skeleton dug up from three different sites in Montana and Wyoming. It is expected to sell today for as much as $8.9 million. The Dow is down 87 points. This is CBS News. Streamline how you hire with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair, Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. King Charles Investiture is getting closer. Hundreds of military personnel held an overnight rehearsal in. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle says the school committee will continue to look for a new superintendent after the latest choice, Dr. Erica Fikinski-Stark, withdrew her application. This is after the school committee rescinded an offer to Dr. Vito Perone. He, he wants what's equal to 14 weeks off for a superintendent. And we're looking for a full-time superintendent. Dr. Pro came up with a different offer that was completely not in line with the expectations in the job description. Perone says he never got the chance to negotiate. I didn't intend to take 40 days of sick days. I don't do that. However, I'm 58 years old and things happen. And if we were negotiating, that would be my request. The school committee's next meeting is on April 25th. 
Police in Amherst and Hadley, as well as Massachusetts State Police, were on I-91 southbound last night working to apprehend a vehicle in pursuit. The vehicle was forced to come to a stop in Holyoke before the operator was able to be taken into custody. More information will be released today. Northampton residents will be paying a little more for water and sewer services. The city council approved a rate increase last week after the Coca-Cola bottling plant, which is the city's main source of revenue, announced it will close. Water rates will go from $15 to $47, while sewage rates will jump to as much as $28 more. The revenue gained from the increased rates will help pay for a $16 million upgrade of the wastewater treatment plant and will take effect July 1st, 2024. Mostly cloudy today, chance for a scattered shower, especially early afternoon, a high of 56 to 60. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, overnight low of 32 to 38. Sun cloud mix and breezy tomorrow, a high of 54 to 58, back up near 70 and brighter on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. And we are here in studio with the executive director of the Educational Collaborative, Todd Gazda. Todd, every city and town in Massachusetts right now is grappling with budgets for schools, all the necessary uh, expenditures to make a school system what we want it to be. Um, So how do we fund our schools? (laughs) Are there problems with how we fund our schools? And from your perspective as the director of the Educational Collaborative, which uh, support school districts. What can you tell us about funding? And, and, and we should point out a longtime superintendent. Yes. 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 So uh, schools are funded through a combination of state money and local property taxes. Uh, this creates a situation that is inherently unequal. Uh, different communities have the capacity uh, to spend varying amounts on public education. So what you end up with is inequities across the Commonwealth uh, for the quality of education uh, as different districts apply more local money because they're, they're quite frankly, able to. Uh, it leads to situations where you know, school districts like West, uh, Weston, Wellesley, Cambridge, which um, provides over 124% over the required amount uh, to fund public education. uh, Because of property values. Correct. And property values and just the financial ability of the town to pay. Uh, Whereas school districts uh, in a lot of our urban communities like Worcester, Springfield, Brockton, are paying at or around what the state considers the minimum level to fund public education. The problem is any educator will tell you that minimum level isn't appropriate to adequately fund public education. As an example, in the nine years I was in Ludlow as superintendent, we were we usually came in high 20s, low 30s, above that net school spending requirement. So in order to provide an adequate public education, different communities are having to kick in more. Could you go back for one second? 20 Certainly. or 30, is that 20 or 30 percent above that level? Is that what you Correct. mean? Correct. So, um, you know, it, but you look at... So, you know, a town like Ludlow, which is a very blue-collar community, average uh, tax base, uh, was paying 20, 25 to 30, I think at one point, 34 percent 
over what the state said was the minimum. So um, because of their commitment to public education, they paid more. And it's not a commitment. Everybody believes in public education. Everybody wants the schools to have more money. It's just some towns have the ability to pay more. And so that's what creates the inequitable system. Could you go back for a second, just rewind this tape? Because I remember the big fight over Prop 2 and a half mm. when we were going to keep property taxes and the increases in property taxes to a, the increases. We're going to reduce those and we're going to have a cap on it and all that. But the deal was, in exchange for that, the state was going to send money back to the cities and towns for education. That hasn't worked. Well, you know, the state or always, has it. The state always puts that little caveat in their legislation, you know, subject to appropriation. Uh, you know, back in the 60s, in order to get school districts to regionalize, they promised to fund uh, regional transportation uh, for those districts. Now, since 1960 or the early 60s, when that was put, brought forward, maybe one or two years, if that, have they fully funded uh, regional transportation. So, you know, there's another example of, you know, the state not living up to their commitments. Although we should point out something that Natalie Blay, Representative Natalie Blay on our show, has said she is working on and she is going to improve that situation this legislative session. Well, I just and my, and my question to you, Todd Gosda, was going to be, how do we remake this formula? But uh, I just want to point out my understanding is that Governor Healy's budget proposal would increase local aid by 10%. That uh, about $635 million increase mm. for local schools from the state. That's my understanding. Is that really true? You know, first of all, with the budgetary process, the governor puts forth their budget usually in you know January. By the fourth we think Wednesday in January, I think, is when it's due to the House. It goes to House Ways and Means. Then it goes to the House, and then it goes to the Senate ways, means, and then the Senate. So by the time you get through the budgetary process, the budget looks very different than the budget that the governor has put forth. However, school districts don't have the you know, leeway. They have to get their budgets done by the end of the fiscal year. And so we're forced to budget off of um, – typically they'll use the governor's budget as a base. Uh, and so, yes, these increases are in the governor's budget. Whether or not they hold will depend on how it looks when it goes through the House and Senate. Now – I will also say that, yeah, the numbers seem large until you spread that out across school districts across the Commonwealth and recognizing that not everybody's getting the same slice of the pie. And so larger districts are getting more of that $635 million, I think you said. So, you know, that being the case, it once again falls to local property taxes to make up that difference. And so that's where the kicker comes in. It's official. I have now made you the monarch of schools here in Massachusetts. <laughs> what, would, what would the system look like to fund our schools if you had the ability to change things? Uh, you know what? That's a really good question because I think we need a situation where school funding is not contingent upon local property values. And I, and I will say that that is something that is you know, almost universal across the United States. In many uh, of our states across the United States, this is what has traditionally and historically been done. Uh, what does that look like? I am not a financial guru, and I do not play one on TV, and I do not you know, pretend to be one. So I don't – I hate pointing out a problem without having a solution. But quite frankly, I don't have a solution, which is the reason why 
we have the system that we do because I'm not sure what that solution is and people haven't thought of one. Financial people who are smarter than me. I always wonder, Bill, if we could just use property taxes, but it all went into a pool and then was evenly, according to population or some other formula, distributed across all school districts instead of just each school district uh, is paid according to its property base. Well, you could use the local property base and then send back to the school districts from the state an amount to at least equalize the expenditure per student. That could be done. Will never happen quite that way. And even that is not quite equitable because some school systems, because of the special needs of their population, are going to require more money than others. So it's it's not a simple question to be sure, and it's probably never going to happen, but it's at least in theory not an impossible problem. Todd in- Gasly, as as the executive director of the Educational Collaborative, which mm. sees uh, these disparate uh, funding uh, across school districts, um, how disparate is it? That is, how uneven is district to district that you work with is their ability to provide what's necessary to educate our children? I think the easiest way is to see the amount that local districts are paying above foundation, above that minimum requirement that uh, districts are required by the state to spend on public education. And it goes from, there are some districts that have, in certain years, dipped below what the requirement is. Some of our larger urban centers are paying 1% to 4% over what the net school spending is. Uh, but then you look at the more affluent communities that are spending, you know, 100 and, Cambridge is a great example, and I'm not single them out. They're choosing to spend that money. Uh, but 124% above the net school spending requirement in FY21. Could you go back for a second? Certainly. What is the net school spending requirement? What, what are we talking about? Is it an amount per pupil, an amount? What, what that's, is it? That's the amount of... That's the dollar amount that the state has calculated through their formula. Uh, Please don't ask me to go in detail into what that is. Uh, But that each town must spend uh, to provide an adequate public education. However, it's just it's not keeping up with the times. And so that formula has kind of fallen behind, which is part of the reason for the Student Opportunity Act. Uh, And that is intended to fill some of those gaps. That is filling those gaps for the large urban districts uh, where the lion's share of the Student Opportunity Act money goes to. The affluent districts are uh, still able to spend uh, their local property tax money. Uh, Where we're falling, it's the, the little districts, particularly like Excellent examples is out here in Western Mass. They don't qualify for the big urban money uh, like the urban centers do, but they don't have that affluent tax base that they can tap into. And so that's where we're struggling because they're getting a minimum of $60 more per student. And Northampton is a good example. We don't have a very large – we don't have one of those big – property tax bases. We're not a poor city by any stretch, so we don't get a lot of state aid. So we don't, we're we're in that big middle where, well, we lose. We lose out on this formula. 100%. Uh, And so it's, you know, Northampton, Amherst, Greenfield, 
uh, Mohawk, even the, the regionals express, ex, uh, are experiencing the same kind of, you know, kind of bind financially. Uh, and what it, so it, it's like we took care of both ends and now the middle is getting squeezed. Um, and so that's one of the challenges we're trying to overcome. One change that's in effect for this fiscal year will be the million, millionaire's tax, which is anyone who earns over a million dollars will be uh, paying an extra tax of 4%. They've, they've estimated that could be $1.3 billion up to $2.6 billion, depending on who you listen to and whether the critics are right about some people moving out of Massachusetts, which I doubt, in order to avoid it. That's to be split between transportation and education. What's the word on the street in, in the education collaborative in terms of how that's looking for next fiscal year? Word on the street, uh, which is, you know, changes from day to day. Uh, and I will say, you know, er, it, once, a, once a pot of money like that gets generated, everybody's, you know, trying to dip their hands in. Uh, and so, you know, but what we're hearing and what I've heard uh, is that when it comes to education, a lot of that's going to higher ed. Uh, and so whether that happens, and I'm not saying it's not necessary, because it is, to su it is necessary to support our state higher ed institutions. Um, but when you have a limited pie, you can only divide it up so much. And so, you know, I'm skeptical right now as to how much is actually of the millionaire's tax money is actually going to get down to K-12 schools. And if it does, how is that money going to be distributed? Uh, well, I, I think there's a real argument to be made that the first year out for the Student Opportunity Act, the money should go to pay for things that have been deferred for a long time and are essentially, not exclusively, but essentially one-time payments. So, for example, let's repair the infrastructure because the buildings are falling apart. If we bring them up to a reasonable uh, uh, place in terms of their, their condition – we're not going to have to spend that kind of money going forward. Whereas if you distribute money out to the school districts now, it's going to have be a new base, and that's going to set that's going to set the floor going forward. It will. And one of the things we don't want to happen is what we're seeing happened with uh, the ESSER money uh, that came down for the federal governments is that this these one, essentially one-time funds, um, because of emergency situations, uh, school districts were forced to budget against them to support positions, and now they're reaching a cliff. Those funds are drying up, the positions are still there and still necessary, and yet the money's not there, and how do we fill that gap? And that's what we're seeing right now in a lot of school districts is that concern of how do we fill that gap. Well, here's a new and novel question before we take our break, which is everybody wants better schools. How do we fund them? Hmm, that's a new question. <laughs> we back with Todd Gazda from the Educational Collaborative right after these messages. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. 
Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday downtown sounds? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with education expert Todd, Todd Gazda, a longtime superintendent of the Ludlow School District and uh, currently the executive director of the Educational Collaborative. And I guess this is a good point to just ask, what is the Educational Collaborative? What does it do? The Collaborative for Educational Services is an educational service agency. There's 24 across the state of Massachusetts. We are the largest. We serve the most number of districts and have the largest um, budget, about $43 million this year. How many districts? 37. 37 member districts. So it's all, basically all of Franklin and Hampshire County public schools uh, belong to the Hampshire Educational Collaborative. Uh, and I meet weekly with superintendents. We uh, facilitate a, a weekly meeting. And so these issues are front and center when we talk about how to fund public education. And I hear their concerns, you know, daily. So what kind of services does the Collaborative offer? A wide range of services, everything from professional development to a sp uh, we have a special education program. We have an alternate high school program at Mount Tom on, on Holyoke Community College campuses. We run education, educational programming for the Department of Youth Services. Uh, we do a lot of early childhood work. Uh, we have a Healthy Families and Children's Division that does community wellness and outreach programs. So basically anything necessary to support communities, students, families, and schools. For Hilltown districts, like the one that I live in, uh, schools are just over 50% of our budget. Mm. It's just about 51% of our budget. And we have a declining enrollment problem. We don't have enough students to fill the classrooms that were built to house more students. So there's a great amount of frustration among taxpayers who love the idea of supporting our schools and who are frustrated that with fewer students, it's costing us more money. It is. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, okay, we have fewer, fewer students. It should cost less. The problem is if you lose 100 students in a school district, say of 1,500 students, those, school, those kids aren't all in one grade level. And so they're spread out over those 12 grades. So you're only losing, say, 
eight to 10 in a grade, which when you have four, you know, four or five classrooms, one or two kids in a classroom reduction doesn't mean you can reduce a teacher. And so the staffing requirements are still there. The infrastructure requirements are still there, heating, lights. Uh, and so it really comes down to less money coming in from the state. Uh, and how do you maintain what you feel is important? And that's where the discussions get really interesting. So do you have some ideas in terms of innovation that's possible for these districts where they are suffering from the phenomena you were just describing? What can they do differently than what they're doing right now? One of the things the collaborative does try to do is build capacity across districts. Can we, how can we pool resources? How can we, you know, go in for cooperative purchasing on maybe, you know, just supplies and or services. Uh, maybe if we can get four districts to come together to purchase uh, you know, a program that they want, we can get better rates. Uh, so things like that we're actively looking at and just kind of listening to what our members are saying. Where the, where's their need? Uh, and then working to find uh, help facilitate grant money to support those needs. But you got to be careful with grant money because grants go away. And so there has to be some sort of plan. If you hire staff with grant money that you know is going to be for two to three years, you have to have some sort of plan after that two to three years if you want it to continue. So, Todd Gazda, I understand the value and the economic uh, imperative, I would say at this point, of schools uh, banding, banding together to uh, make purchases to save money because there's an economy of scale. Mm -hmm. I understand that. Uh, that said, my understanding is that the large percentage of school budgets is devoted to personnel. So as you say, you can't uh, lay off a 20th of a teacher. So am I wrong about where the budget, where the money goes? You're not. It's, it is, uh, you know, almost three quarters or more of any school district's budget is personnel. Uh, that's where the money goes. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at, you know, innovative things, there have been things around to kind of share staff across districts since, uh, you know, I started in 2001. There had distant, distance learning type things where they did it with cameras. And now our um, technology is such that we could do it in a much more robust manner. So that's one of the things down the road we're looking to expand. It does create problems, though. You know, it's, hey, just share a, uh, you know, a teacher, a foreign language teacher for two districts or three districts, and students can come in remotely. But the problem is that locks that um, class in everybody's schedule, which creates a real scheduling problem uh, in districts. And so, you know, every solution creates challenges. Uh, and so these are some of the things and some of the conversations we are having uh, to kind of get over that. But, you know, at the end of the day, then when you're putting that budget together, uh, it, becomes, it becomes what you value, meaning what does the district feel is important for education in their communities. And, you know, I jokingly say to new superintendents, bands, buses, and balls, that's where your three hot-button issues for people are going to be. It, band, buses, 
and athletics. Those are the ones that get really people fired up. Uh, and unfortunately, those are some of the first areas that you have to begin to cut back on in tight budget seasons. It's also the things that keep kids in school and make them enthusiastic about going to school and make them do better in school. You look at what happened at uh, SciTech in Springfield and go, wow, that band made that school. And that's true Across the board. 100%. Now, I am, a, I am a Hilltown kid. I grew up in Middlefield. For me, school was everything because there was nothing else. I was in student government. I was in the plays. I was in athletics. Um, I would get to school at 6 a.m. with my father. What we call extracurriculars as if they're not crucial. They are crucial. 100% to create well-rounded individuals. Uh, and so for me, school was it because there were no other services in some of our smaller communities. Uh, and so that's where it becomes critical, and that's where the budget crunch really hurts. If you see blood dripping from my tongue right now, it's because I hate the question that I'm about to ask. But even though we are all in favor of local control, I am totally committed to local control. Is the school district model out of date? I don't believe the model is out of date. I, I, I believe uh, in schools having a say or Communities having a say in what their schools look like. You know, I fully believe that a school district's um, culture is shaped by the community in which it resides, and that's important. Uh, and people move to communities for the culture and for the schools. And so I do believe that local control is essential. In the couple of minutes that we have left, Todd Gesta, um, I, I want to know if people want to do something, people want to be active in helping with the funding model or helping with their schools in any way, uh, how do they contact the collaborative and ask what they can do? And what do you think they can be doing? You know, I don't think con actually contracting, contacting the collaborative isn't going to help. Um, however, co having conversations, being involved in the local political process, going to school committee meetings, hearing what the discussions are, to become informed. And so that when people are advocating for a position, they recognize what the what the balance is. You know, you can if you got a limited pot of money, if you give money more money here, it's got to come from somewhere else. Well, I, yes and no. I mean, you look at the Northampton Education uh, uh, Foundation, uh, the NEF, and you say this is an organization. Private individuals have been now in existence for I can't remember how long, but a long time, twenty years maybe, and they make an enormous contribution to to the school system. 100%. Educational foundations are, your, that's a very good point, a really great way to get involved. Um, and many districts have uh, nonprofit educational foundations uh, that can help support some of those traditional extracurricular type activities. And creative endeavors from teachers. The small grants. Uh, yes. Uh, the small grants from, from NEF uh, pay for uh, projects, the teacher said, here's a really new innovative idea that's not in the budget. Can you fund this? And the answer often is yes, some by school, some uh, across the district. Uh, I mean, it's really exciting what has happened and how NEF has made such a big difference in Northampton. For Northampton, it is one of those wealthier districts relative to a lot of the Hilltown districts with which I'm familiar. And but even Gateway has an educational foundation um, that was established years ago that helps to provide some of that funding. It's not as big, not as robust, but it is there. Important point. Thank you, Bill. Todd Gazza, this is, uh, we love that you join us monthly and that you share your understanding of something that we all care deeply about, our kids' education. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
We are going to be back. We're going to be talking to with an author of the book, The Vow, which is about love in the context of the Holocaust. We'll be back right after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. An Apple man has been sentenced for his part in the January 6th attacks at the Capitol. Vincent Gillespie was found guilty of civil disorder, physical violence, assaulting or impeding officers, and other charges in the January 6th U.S. Capitol attacks. He was sentenced to five years in prison. Evidence presented at the trial show Gillespie, a previous resident of Greenfield, among rioters violently engaging with police defending the Lower West Terrace of the Capitol. Gillespie was arrested in February of last year. One person is under arrest after an alleged stabbing Saturday around 1 p.m. in Montague. Police received reports of an assault and battery with a deadly weapon and found an 80-year-old victim with wounds to the abdomen and hand. They were transported to Bay State Medical Center in Springfield. The reported attacker turned herself into the Montague Police Department and was arrested and held on $25,000 bail. She is expected to appear in Greenfield District Court today for an arraignment. Mass Housing is looking for the public's help by submitting comments about the planned construction of affordable homes on Ball Lane and Amherst. The nonprofit organization Valley Community Development Corporation in Northampton has applied to Mass Housing for funding assistance. The proposal is to develop 30 affordable home ownership units on 20 to 40 Ball Lane, approximately eight acres located at the corner of Pulpit Hill Road and Montague Road. Forms are available for public comment on the town's website. Mostly cloudy today, chance for a scattered shower, especially early afternoon. A high of 56 to 60. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, overnight low of 32 to 38. Sun cloud mix and breezy tomorrow, a high of 54 to 58. Back up near 70 and brighter on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Meltdown, the annual spring music and book bash for kids and their grown-ups. Brought to you by The River and Mass General Brigham's Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Saturday, April 22nd, Meltdown is at Hawks and Reed in downtown Greenfield for a day of free family fun. 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. rain or shine. Live music and authors on the Hawks and Reed main stage with Carrie Ferguson and the Grumpy Town Club Band, the Deedle Deedle Dees, and puppets with Tom Knight, along with great local authors like Sue Fuller, Ty Allen Jackson, and Mira Bartok. Outside on Court Square, the amazing acrobatics of the Show City Circus, Birds of Prey with Tom Riccardi, adorable dogs from Heroes Boarding and Training, and enjoy great local food from Cocina Lupita, Holyoke Thomas and Bart's Ice Cream. Meltdown, brought to you with the support of Mass General Brigham's Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Saturday, April 22nd, inside and outside Hawks and Reed in downtown Greenfield. It's rain or shine, and it's free. See you there. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. 
At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started, and we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long, and you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. I uh, have in my hands a rather extraordinary book. It, uh, I, I can't overstate how extraordinary and remarkable this is. It is called The Vow. Uh, the subtitle is A Love Story and the Holocaust. It's an incredible book. It's written by Michael Ruskin, and Michael is on the phone with us. Hello, Michael. Hello, Buzz. How are you? I am great, and I'm really grateful that you are um, sharing the time with us today to talk about uh, a breathtaking story. Um, Your parents um, are the subject of this book. Their love is the subject of this book. The Holocaust is the subject of this book. What brought you, Michael Ruskin, at this stage of your life to write this book? Well, it starts back in 1993 when my father passed away, and he was living in Miami Beach, Florida. And when I went down to the condo to arrange uh, the real estate people to put the condo on the market, I found some documents in his night table. And inside the night table were documents and testimony that were written by doctors and uh, lawyers who were petitioning the courts in in, uh, Munich, Germany in 1964 for reparations for the loss of my sister and my grandparents on both sides. In 2008, my brother passed away from sudden illness at the age of 58. And then I became the last surviving member of my family. And actually, I am the only native born in my family tree. All my family came from Lithuania, uh, Russia, and Poland. And a few years later, uh, I started thinking that I was getting older, and now I'm in my early 70s. uh, And I wanted to write their story because it was a remarkable story, uh, which we can go into a little bit. But it basically... The book itself is more spiritual in nature and the fact that my parents exemplified the strength of the human spirit and the power of love before before they survived one of the horrible experiences during all human history. Well, I think I have to stop you right there, and let's go into that. Why don't you tell us about the love story? Okay, so um, my father came from a rather poor family. My grandfather actually ran a small haberdashery in a small town in northern Lithuania. My mother was the daughter of a, of a rabbi in another town about a half hour from where they lived. 
And so they came from two different uh, socioeconomic areas. My father was very poor. My mother came from a very wealthy family, uh, one of nine children. 1936, she ended up uh, going to Kaunas, which is the capital city of Lithuania. And she was studying to become a teacher. Well, my father ended up going to Kaunas about a year later to start a job as an electrician. And they ended up meeting uh, within a few months as my father took an apartment on the third floor of the building that my mom and my aunt were living on the second. And my aunt introduced my dad to my mom. And they had a courtship which lasted about a year. And of course, uh, it was quite astounding that their relationship blossomed the way it did, but they got married in uh, 1939, and a year later, my sister was born in 1940. And where were they living? They were living in Kaunas, which was the capital city, the capital city of Lithuania at that time. Uh, um, it's, uh, I don't know, they had about, about uh, 45,000 people back then. It was back in the 1930s. But they came from two different cities, and they, they ended up in the same city. And just by coincidence, my dad moved into the apartment building where my mom was living with my aunt. In this book, it is a, a son writing about this amazing story, what his parents did, what they experienced. But it's also history. You explain the sound of marching boots that were heard in the city of Kaunas, as the Germans came in, you, you explain, uh, there's one quote I love here, which is from Viktor Frankl. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we're then challenged to change ourselves. I guess we have to turn to what your parents did with this um, impending doom. What did they do during the Holocaust? How did they do it? Where did they do it? Yeah, and we should note that the Nazis took over Lithuania in June of 41. Good point. That is correct. Well, back in 1941, um, well, let me back up a second, Buzz. In 1940, the, the Russians actually annexed Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Those are the three countries not too far from the Ukraine, and it's still in, in the news today. Um, so they actually took over Lithuania and annexed the com the, the, that country, and in, in, in that uh, many of the Lithuanians were considered enemy of the state, and they ended up sending them to Siberia. There were a lot of uh, taken over by the uh, Russians of various plants uh, and businesses, and it basically became a communist country. Uh, and then when Germany came in from Poland, uh, they ended up uh, getting the Russians to retreat back into the Soviet Union, and then uh, the, the Germans then took over uh, Lithuania and Kaunas, and that's where the problems really began, because it was then where the Germans uh, ended up meeting with a number of the locals in the area, and they were trying to point out where the Jewish homes were in the city. And of course, there were many Lithuanians that were angry because of the fact that the Russians, they thought the Russians were collaborating with the Germans. And then with Germany was uh, booted out of Lithuania, they thought it was payback because they believed that the Jews were collaborating with the Russians. With, there was no substantial evidence that that was the case. And at that point, those mobs actually uh, murdered a lot of the Jews. And that's why 
Lithuania had the highest percentage number of deaths in Europe, almost 97 percent, compared to any other country in Europe during that time. So when you can no way to stop there for one sec. 97 percent of what? 97 percent of the Jewish population of Lithuania were exterminated, which was a combination of the Nazis exterminations and also the locals who also felt there was payback for what the Jews, what the Jews they believed did uh, with the Russians, which did not occur. So Michael Ruskin, the author of The Val, A Love Story and the Holocaust. I wish we had time to go through all of that history, but what did your parents end up doing? How did they survive this purge, this extermination that you just described? Obviously, it was a it was a horrible, horrible experience. Uh, what happened was they ended up uh, taking the Jews and put them in putting them in the ghetto, which was the uh, poorest part of the town, and they stayed in an apartment building um, for almost three and a half years. And they were subjected to a lot of uh, brutality, and the, the, the Nazis were coming into the apartments and taking various. Uh, household items and money and beating up the uh, locals, the local Jewish populations in those apartment buildings. But they they had a very strong faith. They had a very strong bond um, and they had a lot of courage. And what happened, and that's why the book is called The Vow, was because my parents who survived uh, almost three years in the ghetto were separated and put into separate uh, train cars. One was going to Dachau and the other one was going to Stutthof, which is a camp up in northern Poland. That's where they made the vow that if either one were to live, they were to go back to the town where they first met to see if the other one was still alive. So I got to tell you, Buzz, the main thing is it was their love and their faith that really kept them alive. I lost my sister in 1944 uh, when the Germans ended up uh, invading the apartment buildings and taking the children actually out of the apartments. And in March 27th of 44, over 1,600 children were exterminated in the extermination building encounters. It's rarely ever spoken about. It was one of the great tragedies of World War II. And one of those was my sister, who was literally taken out of the arms of my mother, they were underneath the floorboard in their apartments, and the SS came in and found them underneath the floor. And the, my, my uh, sister, Rose, was literally taken out of my mother's arms by the Germans and taken away. And all this information I'm providing you now is in the documents I found in my father's night table in 2000 and, um, 2000, I'm sorry, 1993. This is Bill. I'd like to know the family history a bit more. I'd like to understand why you didn't know about this, why it was a secret until you found this information in the night table of your parents after their death. Why? Well, to be honest, very there are many, many uh, survivors that rarely spoke about their experiences and, um, and my parents were one of them. Also, the, the veterans who fought during the, that time also rarely spoke about their experiences. The only time they really brought it up was when we were sitting in my den watching a TV, World at War, where a document, documentary of what happened during World War II. My father would once in a while make a statement. 
But most of the information uh, I found in those documents and a conversation I had with my cousin at the time who passed away since then in Tel Aviv, and the rest of the information I received from uh, the Holocaust Museum at the, uh, through the, li- the library where they actually did some research for me and they found that my mom and dad went through that kind of experience. Okay, so... so basically, I just never spoke about it. So do you understand how they actually survived the camps? Um, I mean, most didn't. How did they? I think God had a hand in that. Uh, my father, my father was kept alive. I know by the fact that he was an electrician, Buzz. And what happened was he did a lot of work inside the Dachau camp, and he was also responsible for taking uh, the bodies off the electrical. And I don't want to go into too much graphic here, but uh, the bodies off the electrical fences of those who committed suicide and those who tried to escape. And then he would have to take the bodies to the crematorium. Uh, to be burned. So he was kept alive basically for his technical trade skills as an electrician. My mother, on the other hand, was just, my mother was four foot 11, tough as nails. And uh, my aunt and her were kept alive just by working. They had these work details and they were digging anti-tank ditches and working at the various barracks that were uh, around the the, uh, Stutthof camp. And I think it was just her, her strength, the will to survive, that made it. But we are speaking with... Typhus. I'm no, sorry. sorry. No, 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 I'm sorry. We're speaking with Michael no, she, Ruskin. She, she, the story is, it really is about the best and the worst of the human condition. It's called The Vow, A Love Story, and The Holocaust. You could get a copy off of Michael Ruskin's website, thevowalovestory.com. That's all one word, The Vow a lovestory.com. We're going to be back. And what I want to talk to Michael Ruskin about is what are the lessons that we learn as we watch an increase in hate and in particular, anti-Semitism now in 2023. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. The months following a child's birth can be of the most trying times of a woman's life. With the -the round-the-clock demands of a newborn, who is the time or energy for housework? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work for you. With our Green Care Postpartum Support Program, we offer discounted green cleaning services on a sliding scale to postpartum families for the duration of the fourth trimester, or the first three months after your baby is born. To find out more about the services we provide, check us out online at greenloveclean.com. When we couldn't get together, we went virtual. Now we can get together, so let's do both. Riverside Industries annual auction is here with a twist. Start with a virtual silent auction, finish with a live auction and celebration. The silent auction is open now. Bid on a wide variety of items, big and small. Proceeds from the auction directly support Riverside's mission to empower people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to live rich and full lives. Register now at rsi.org and start your bidding now through April 28th. 
The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Take WHMP and news from the Pioneer Valley with you everywhere. Download the TuneIn Radio app and search for WHMP. It's free, it's easy, and it's wherever you are. WHMP on TuneIn Radio. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are back with Michael Ruskin, the author of the book, The Vow, A Love Story and the, and the Holocaust. Uh, Michael, where, where do you live and what do you do? Okay, I live in the city of Alpharetta, Georgia, which is just uh, northwest of Atlanta. Uh, my background is in human resources consulting, which I still do to this day. Uh, basically, I get involved with training and development and technical recruiting, and uh, that is my part-time job. I'm, in, I'm already 73, so I want to have some time to enjoy, but up till the last few months, all I'm doing is making presentations and uh, taking calls like this to talk about my parents and making sure their legacy lives on. You told us the story about the vow they made when they were being sent to two separate death camps. I take it, since they're your parents, that that vow lived and sustained them in part through those death camps, and then they did meet. What was the rest of what In thumbnail sketch, anyway, what happened? Where were they rescued? And what happened after the war? Okay, so um, in 1945, the Nazis were uh, uh, taking many of the camps and dismantling them, and they were moving many of the Jews to various other camps to get away from the Allies. Uh, during that time, there was there were an event called the Death March, where they would take the uh, remaining Jews of the uh, of the concentration camps and march them to other camps, as I said, to get away from Germans. One of those uh, marches, in fact, both my parents were in the death march. One, my father was in the death march in Dachau, and my mother was in the death march in, uh, in the um, camp in northern Poland, Stuttgart. In my mother's case, she was only, uh, they were traveling about 20 miles by foot, and they were taking many of the Jews, or trying to, to put them on barges to get onto, uh, onto a barge and then move them to Germany. And in that, in that, in that respect, my mom uh, was saved by the Russians as they uh, exterminated the uh, Americans who were actually, not the Americans, I'm sorry, about the Germans who were uh, guarding my parents, my, my mom. Uh, and so she was able to survive uh, just through that incident, and then she ended up uh, going going back to uh, a displacement camp, which we'll talk about in a second. My father went through the same thing. He went through a death march uh, from Dachau to uh, southern Poland and the American allies, which was at that point uh, run by uh, General Eisenhower. He was uh, liberated there. I will and, uh, point out there is a wonderful timeline, which... Uh, is contained at the back of your book that really explains panel by panel what the chronology was and how your parents came to be 
uh, rescued, how they came to this country, uh, how their children were born, and at what age, and eventually uh, that your father passed in 93, as you said, and your mother passed in 2001. I have to ask you before we run out of time, Michael, about we are all seeing an increase in hate uh, in the United States, is reported by government, is reported by uh, Anti-Defamation League and many others. And part of that involves anti-Semitism. As someone who's been focused on the Holocaust in the way that you have, what are your thoughts? Very similar, Buzz, to what happened back in the 1930s uh, in Germany. There was a lot of discontent, a lot of economic hardship, protests, a lot of alienation, uh, and a, a lot of finger pointing, uh, and they pointed most of that to the Jews, similar to what is happening now. And even to this day, I'm seeing uh, Holocaust deniers in my travels that believe that the Holocaust never happened. And uh, the similarities are chilling. And so I believe we all need to take vigilance of this and make sure that we do push back on those people who believe that the Holocaust never happened, not in physical, but in the fact that you need to uh, make your position known that we there's no no doubt about that what happened happened. Uh, but I think that uh, we have to be very, very careful and we have to keep vigilant to what's going on right now in this country, very similar to what happened in, in Germany back in the 30s. Just be, we only have about a minute and a half. Uh, Michael, could you once again tell people the name of the book and how to get the book? Great. Okay, so my book uh, is only on my website. It's called TheVowAlovestory.com. At the present time, I'm not selling through Barnes & Noble um, or Amazon, and you can go right to my website. It has some incredible photographs on there, as well as explains a lot of the timeline that Buzz was talking about, and that's where you can order the book. Uh, My final question, Michael Ruskin, is this. Um, your parents kept much of this a secret. You are doing anything but keeping it a secret. You're trying to publicize it so we all know this extraordinary story. What would they think if they know their son, Michael, was writing the book and publicizing it? I think now they would be very happy. Back in the early days, they would say to me, don't tell anyone that we're refugees. They didn't want anyone to know. But I believe that now that I've written the book and they know Everyone knows about who my parents are. I think they're probably very pleased with me, and uh, I'm very pleased with the response. But all in all, um, it's it's an incredible journey in my parents' lives that I believe a lot of people will find very compelling and very interesting. I found it very compelling and very interesting. It is Michael Ruskin. He's the author of The Val, A Love Story and the Holocaust. You can get it at his website, thevalalovestory.com. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today, and good luck with the book. Okay, thank you very much. And for the rest of us, thank you for joining Talk to Talk. Be sure to walk the walk. Three of us this morning. I'm the only one this evening. But I must go on. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160.
Massachusetts now requires you to recycle fluorescent and other mercury-containing bulbs. A tiny amount of mercury is an essential element in energy-efficient lighting. But when you throw these bulbs in the trash, they can break and release mercury into the environment. Do your part. Keep mercury out of the environment. Recycle used fluorescent bulbs. For convenient recycling solutions, visit lamprecycle.org or almr.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, whmp.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's a